either the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee or the Council on American-Islamic Relations. I have links to both of those organizations on our website, arabvoices.net. You've been listening to Arab Voices, originating on KPFT Houston and syndicated on other radio stations in different cities in the U.S. and Europe. Our shows are archived online and you can listen to them by visiting arabvoices.net. And that does it for the show today. Thanks for listening. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. Until we meet next week, peace on earth. the Humane Society of the United States, and you're listening to KBOO Portland. KBOO Community Radio is a proud media sponsor of the Dia de los Muertos celebration on Wednesday, November 1st, from 12 to 10 p.m. at the Red on Salmon Street in Portland. Dia de los Muertos is an ancient celebration originating from the indigenous people of Mexico. Festivities will include outdoor creation, Muertos face painting, sugar skull decorating, traditional Mexican food, and live musical performances. Again, that's the Dia de los Muertos celebration on Wednesday, November 1st, from 12 to 10 p.m. at the Red on Salmon Street, A31. Southeast Salmon Street in Portland. Remember the days of wandering the pumpkin patches in search of just the right one to bring home? Not too big, not too small, but with a little bit of personality? Well, the days of mucking through the chilled autumn air are over. Now you can grab a Kebu pumpkin crew neck or long sleeve that fits just right and keeps your elbows protected from the elements. Pick up an organic, homegrown, community-sourced piece of merch in gray, green, navy, or maroon and rock this autumn in style. Just check out the sidebar on our website at kebu.fm to harvest your Kebu pumpkin apparel today. Kebu. The more compassion we have towards animals, the more compassion we're going to have towards other people. If you can value them all, you, you really value yourself as well. So even if you don't care about animals, the, the things we do that hurt animals end up hurting ourselves. It's almost kind of a dominion type issue where we feel we need to control everything. Dominion means stewardship to take care of. What would a cow think about satisfying our habit? The challenge lies with looking at suffering from the perspective of the person or individual suffering. Welcome to this month's edition of Voices for the Animals. I'm your host, Michelle Coppola. New at six tonight, another racehorse has died at Golden Gate Fields, bringing the total number of horse deaths there to five in the past 14 days. After two horses were hurt and euthanized at Laurel Racetrack, live racing was suspended. This also comes on the heels of eight horse deaths at Laurel in October and November of last year. Two horses died today at Churchill Downs. That is four total since last Thursday. Racehorse 
deaths at tracks are alarmingly common. Over 10 days leading up to the Kentucky Derby, seven horses died at Churchill Downs. So far this year, 136 thoroughbreds have died, and last year, 901. That's more than two every day. Those are just some of the news reports about the excruciating, untimely deaths of racehorses on our nation's tracks so far in 2023. You know, horse racing has been around for millennia. It's been historically known as the sport of kings. But in the modern day, at least, horse racing is demonstrably rampant with corruption and more concerning cruelty towards the animals used in the business for entertainment and financial enrichment. The Jockey Club's own equine injury database reports that from 2009 to 2021, 7,274 thoroughbred deaths occurred on our nation's tracks. This same industry source says that nearly 10 horses die every week on American racetracks. That includes the 12 that died at Churchill Downs, home of the Kentucky Derby between April 27th and May 27th of this year. Just this past August, the Saratoga Racecourse in New York racked up its 12th horse fatality this summer. And there are reports that four racehorses lost their lives at Grants Pass Downs here in Oregon in just a nine-day stretch this fall. Racehorses are victims of a multi-billion dollar industry that is rife with the drugging of horses, uh, injuries, bad breeding, and there is another sad fact that many racehorses end their careers not on the blue grass happily breeding, but instead in slaughterhouses when they stop making money. Today on Voices for the Animals, we are talking with Susan Kane, former racehorse owner and now the founder and president of the award-winning Unbridled Thoroughbred Foundation about why it may be time to consider an end to horse racing. Susan, thank you so much for being here today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Yep. I want to start my questions by giving you the opportunity to talk a bit about your history with horse racing and how and why you started the Unbridled Thoroughbred Foundation. I have spent the whole of my life with horses and really fell in love with thoroughbreds, specifically when I watched Cannonero win the Kentucky Derby. And I was a little child at the time on my belly on the living room floor watching a big console Magnavox TV. And it really felt like that horse just ran right into my heart. And as I look back and reflect over the decades of working with horses and specifically thoroughbreds, I truly believe it was an act of divine providence at the time. So I grew up on a farm uh, in upstate New York and was very engaged in pony club and then in uh, show jumping. And at the time, thoroughbreds off the track were the horse of choice in the show ring. And in those years, I also was involved in owning racehorses and breeding racehorses. My uh, parents had racehorses. They participated in the New York Thoroughbred Breeding Program for years. And in 2003, when I was still involved in racing and breeding, a horse was retiring from the racetrack named Stalwart Member. And he was a very notable New York bred, and his owner had reached out to me looking for a retirement home for Stalwart Member. So that resulted in the formation of the Unbridled Thoroughbred Foundation. And at that time, back in uh, 2004, is when we actually formalized it as a not-for-profit, the purpose of the organization was to simply provide a safe haven for horses to transition off of the track. And I had such 
experience with that from my years of showing and years of galloping that I felt we could be a great resource to horses getting reacclimated um, from life on the racetrack to going into a second career or becoming a companion horse, whatever suited them best, because it's a very nuanced skill in really helping those horses unwind and make such a big adjustment from a very confined and structured life to one of more um, autonomy and recognition of their, you know, personality and mind and proclivities and agency. So that was the early years of Unbridled from, you know, 2004 right up until about 2011, at which time I had a horse racing in New York myself who broke down. And when I sought answers as to what really happened to him, why he broke down, I started to uncover the massive degree of what I refer to as abusive drugging of racehorses. Um, In the case of my horse, his name was Bourbon Bandit. Um, He was given all sorts of painkillers, muscle relaxers, anti-inflammatories while he was training And simultaneously, the trainer was telling me, oh, he's fine, he's healthy, he's great, no problems. You were the owner of the horse, and you were kept in the dark about what was going on with his care? I most certainly was, and that is really standard protocol on the racetrack that the trainers are making the decisions. Wow. I was a bit of a different case of an owner or type of owner because I'm hands-on and very experienced with horses. Right. I made it clear to the trainer, I said, you know, if this horse is not going to be a a competitive, sound, successful racehorse, um, I can come with the trailer and pick him up. He can come home and he can become a riding horse or he can be turned out to pasture or whatever. Uh, But I wasn't given any correct information to make educated choices in the best interest of the horse. So he ended up fracturing a knee. Um, Thankfully, he was able to recover from that. Um, to be a companion horse, but he had quite a bit of arthritis and it was a long recovery. Um, The veterinarians who who serviced him suggested he be euthanized or, you know, give him a long year's rest and uh, then maybe even return him to the races, which was not an option at all. So it was 2011 and, and the story of Bourbon Bandit really was a pivot point for me. I had been involved with racing and breeding and horses for years, and it really never occurred to me that people would be doing things to horses that are harmful when it is those horses who truly are the co-creators of their dreams. I had my rose-colored glasses shattered, and as I dug deeper into the degree of drugging and how horses were training on excessive drugs, um, racing on drugs. In the case of Bourbon Bandit, he was administered drugs um, inside of the time period allowed in consideration of post-time, which was a violation of New York racing laws. And at that time, I really went through every um, agency that was duty-bound to uphold the laws in New York pertaining to horse racing and whom I thought were there to protect horses and protect the integrity of the horses. And I found out firsthand 
that those organizations, at least at that time, existed simply to protect the stakeholders who were the racetracks, the trainers, the betters. The horse was not included. So as as Unbridled evolved, um, after that, we pivoted again. Um, I became very active legislatively, trying to make a difference in statutes and rules to find ways to better protect horses. And I'm happy to say, as a result of Bandit's story, there were some modifications made um, as to the use of clenbuterol in horses. And that's a good thing for the horses. At least it's a step in the right direction to better protect them while they're engaged in horse racing. And I took Bourbon Bandit's story to the New York Times because I couldn't get any um, justice for Bandit through the agencies and authorities that um, should have protected him and shared his story to the general public to illustrate, you know, what is happening to these beautiful, majestic animals and how hurtful it is to them how unnecessary all of this drugging is and to put out into the public discourse, you know, the question, if these horses are sound and healthy to race, why in the world do they need all of these drugs? You know, I do want to talk a little bit more in depth about the drugging issue, but first I I kind of want to get a bit of a background as far as horse racing and the sport is concerned. It's been around for millennia, obviously, but it's not always been this way. It seems like the the drugging and the race fixing and the bad tracks and the bad breeding and so forth has really been more of a modern thing, or has this been going on a while? Can you speak to that? Well, I can speak to it with regard to my own experience. And I can tell you that when I was younger and involved in it, there was a lot more pride in really conditioning your horse, breeding a big, strong, solid boned horse, um, one that you had a relationship with, a horse that had longevity and stamina in their pedigree. And I can only surmise that that has changed because there's so much more money at stake now that it seems to me less of a sport and more of a of a money game and horses are simply a pawn and a prop and a tool to get that money. We are seeing from what I understand a lot of bad breeding practices too and is this something that is uh, new or is it something that has been going on for a while where horses are being bred to be lighter and not as strong and being raced too early? Um, I can tell you what I've observed over the years um, as a younger person you know the thoroughbred stallion of choice was Northern Dancer Uh, Northern Dancer was basically a very short, stout thoroughbred. And now when you see Northern Dancer's name, he's about four generations back in the pedigrees of modern thoroughbreds. And since that time, thoroughbreds are definitely lighter and more spindly. And interestingly, I came across a statement on a podcast um, by Larry Bramlich, who's a veterinarian who often speaks in favor of racing two-year-olds and pushing horses to increase their bone density. And he was referencing that these horses are built lighter than ever, to be faster than ever, you know, and you're always on the edge of pushing them too hard where they break because of the lightness of the breed in this day and age. And that, again, how I see that 
is it is expensive and such a massive investment from the time that you breed a mare, you have an 11 month gestation period, you then have another 18 months until that young horse is a year and a half, um, which is the time that most thoroughbreds begin training, which is terribly young. It's about a four-year-old human being at that time. And they're, the plates of their of their bones and so forth are not fully formed at that point, right? They're not at all. Horses really, their bones fuse from the ground up, so to speak. The spine is the last to fuse um, at the age of six or last to develop. Fuse is not the right word for that. So you've got horses who are being trained on and having a lot of demands put on a growing body. The argument from the thoroughbred industry and Bramlage specifically is that, well, it's all of that pushing that increases bone density. Well, two-year-olds working out and running nine-second furlongs is ridiculously demanding and it breaks bones. You know, that's very different from a two-year-old galloping, frolicking across a field of their own volition, playing with their playmates, developing not only physically, but mentally and emotionally as well. So in my opinion, anecdotally, what I see with these young horses is not only do they have multiple physical infirmities coming out of a racing career, but we also see an increase in what's called kissing spine, quite specifically in thoroughbreds. And I can only believe that that is a result of that spine being worked on throughout that horse's career growing. And if Bramlage makes the argument that, you know, the joints fuse, fuse or become stronger or calcify because of pressure on them, I have to think that that's what's happening with the spines and thoroughbreds. In the early years with these bigger, stronger thoroughbreds that weren't pushed so hard as two-year-olds and early on in their careers, you know, you just didn't see these incidences of, of kissing spines so much. They're repeatedly pushed too hard, too fast, without any time to recover between injuries that occurred while they were racing. Drugs will never expedite healing in a way that will get a horse back to the races safer and faster. You know, and and that's the real insult to the animal is that they're willing to run. They're willing to do anything for you. But what I see is a lack of industry participants willing to give the horses the a the time that they need to mature really if you want to race a mature horse and you care about the horse well they shouldn't race until they're five or six years old when their body's fully mature and also they have some mental maturity then and emotional maturity as well i couldn't imagine as i look out at horses we have here who are a year and a half two years old three years old tacking them up and putting them on a racetrack, putting blinkers on them, asking them you know, to run as fast as they can, to think far beyond their mental capabilities as youngsters. But for financial reasons, an owner and trainer and so forth, usually they don't want to wait that long because they want to recoup their investment as quickly as they can. That is precisely the case. It's driven by money. And in interviews that I have conducted many times with people, I have asked the question, I would be interested to know, since you love this sport so much and you love these horses so much, 
would you be engaged in this? Would you be investing in it if there was no prize money at stake? You're listening to Voices for the Animals on KBOO FM Portland. We are talking to Susan Kane, former racehorse owner and now the founder and president of the Unbridled Thoroughbred Foundation, about the issues and problems with horse racing. Susan, you know, you told us earlier that at one time you were a very proud racehorse owner and loved the sport. Would you say that now you would like to see horse racing eradicated completely or that you would be happy just to see it significantly reformed? I don't see any reason in this day and age to be racing horses. My advocacy is a little bit different than a lot of what I see with varied factions who are involved from abolitionists to those who would like to see horse racing reformed. And that's from my own experience. You know, I've lived and breathed horses my whole life, thoroughbreds specifically. I don't have any issues with engaging in activities with horses that are mutual, consensual, not harmful to the horse in any way, shape, or form. I was engaged in show jumping for many years, so I really understand what it feels like to have a partnership and a relationship with a horse. And I know what it feels like to have a horse that I'm working with who's a willing partner and a horse who's saying, no, this isn't just for me. So I consider myself truly a voice for the horses. I find that so many advocates whom I love and appreciate do have an underlying agenda. And my feeling is is that, you know, at every stage of, of my ability to be of help to them, if they're involved in racing, I'm going to do what I can to make racing better and safer for the horses. I don't think it can ever be reformed as long as there's so much money at stake. So it's been a very, very, um, it's been a very excruciatingly hard journey for me personally because I know that I was engaged in doing things with horses in my past that I would never dream of doing today. And as I've evolved, that's the hand that I'm, I've, I've been dealt, you know, and, and I don't back down from it. I can own who I was and what I did, and I can say, you know what, now that I know better, I'm going to do better, and I will never ever back down when it comes to protecting horses and creating a better world for them. I wanted to circle back a little bit. You mentioned the slaughter pipeline, and and I do want to touch on that because something that people may not realize is the fact that many older and underperforming racehorses end up in the slaughterhouse. They don't all just retire to the bluegrass or to rescues like your own or to breeding pastures. Do you have some estimates as to how many of these horses end their days that way? It's hard to get any real accurate data. It is estimated that 20% of the horses who are in the slaughter pipeline are thoroughbreds. And also, a statement by Alex Waldrop, who is the head of the National Thoroughbred Racing Association, he publicly estimated about 7,500 thoroughbreds a year end up in slaughterhouses. What is so egregious in the United States is that only about 18,000 thoroughbreds are born every year. And if 20% of the the horses going into the slaughter pipeline are thoroughbreds, that's almost the equivalent of the whole foal crop each year. And thoroughbreds are purposefully bred. 
you know, one has to ask the question, what is the responsibility of the breeder? The breeder is in a very privileged position. They are they have unilaterally chosen to bring this life into the world. And then they are the architects of that living being's existence. And I believe that there is a moral responsibility that is due breeders and all past connections to these thoroughbreds who end up in the slaughter pipeline or if they're in an abuse or neglect situation where they need a lifeline. Um, at Unbridled, I've actually started what's called the Past Connections Project. And that is reaching out to all past connections of horses we've rescued, whether they come from abuse, neglect, cruelty, auctions, or slaughter yards, reaching out to their breeders, sales agents, past owners, um, and inviting them to participate in that horse in this horse's future to safeguard them in sanctuary. I do want to talk a bit about some oversight efforts that have been established here in the United States, namely the creation of the Horse Integrity and Safety Authority. They're known as HISA. And I wanted to know, to your knowledge, has this agency been effective as of yet in helping reduce doping, bad breeding, and all the other problems that are rife in horse racing? Are they really uh, being effective at all? You know, I think it's so early in their authority over the sport that it's really hard. It's really hard to tell if it has an effect or not. You know, I only know what I read in the media and in responses of industry participants um, on Facebook, and it's really a mixed reaction to that. In my opinion, until there is a zero tolerance policy, there's not enough penalties to sway behavior before doing harm to horses. It's a very challenging environment to help the horse themselves in horse racing and you know a great example of that is the thoroughbred aftercare alliance that is an aftercare umbrella organization that is self-appointed in accrediting aftercare um, facilities rescues and sanctuaries to look after horses when they've been sent away from the racetrack to be retired or retrained or rehabilitated and rehomed And when you really read through, you know, what they're doing and why they're doing it and what's behind it, it appears at first glance that, oh, this is wonderful. They're going to make sure all these horses get a safe exit from the racetrack. But in fact, they're charged with protecting the stakeholders. You know, Unbridled is not accredited by the Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance, even though we exceed the criterion for accreditation. And the specific reason is, that we have been told uh, we're too outspoken about abuse, breakdown, drugging, and the slaughter of thoroughbreds. You know, it's amazing to me when you talk to veterinarians and jockeys and handlers and so forth, they profess to really love their animals. It's, it's incredible to me that they would go along with the doping and the bad breeding and the other issues that plague the sport, not to mention, you know, the emotional and mental toll this takes on the horses. Uh, is it all about money and prestige or are some of these players involved? Do they feel powerless? What do you think is going on? You know, that's a question I seek to answer every day, and I'm hoping through the Past Connections Project that I will be enlightened to a better degree of understanding, because I know for me, when I learned what was going on, I walked away from it. There was no way that I would continue to be engaged 
in racing and breeding horses while horses were being drugged, breaking down, and sent to slaughter. So I want to, uh, wrapping up, give the opportunity for you to talk to folks who are really interested in maybe doing more or doing something to help the horses that are involved in this industry, aside from not supporting racing and, of course, donating and volunteering with horse rescues and organizations like your own. What else would you suggest that people do if they want to make a difference? I think one of the biggest ways people can make a difference is truly to be a voice for horses. Anybody can go online these days, become more educated, learn more about who horses are as incredible individuals with personalities and minds um, with whom we share the planet, to you know, engage in conversations with neighbors, with friends, and just bring up the subject from the horse's point of view. You know, my feeling is with all that we're up against, one of the greatest tools that I have to sway hearts and minds is to hold space to not only share who horses are, but in doing so, to give people an opportunity to fall in love with horses again. You know, it's hard, and we talked about love earlier. There's different kinds of love. Right. (laughs) But to really... You know, just give some voice to, you know, these are living, breathing, intelligent, thinking, feeling, social beings. And to force them into acts of servitude when they are so young without giving them a choice in in the matter, um, you know, to be, what are we doing with horses when we're drugging lame horses to race? It's a horrible thing. And it can be talked about in a very conversant way when you when you just consider the horse first. You know, so many times, especially in our current environment, people get siloed, the topics get so polarized. You know, it's been very it's been hurtful to me in that, you know, I have some people who are extreme anti racing. They don't support unbridled, they don't, you know, just pay attention to what we're doing on social media because we're not out there saying end horse racing right now. But I think that everybody is a spoke on a wheel to advance the cause forward and they can do something and, you know, together we're, we can be a tremendously strong voice for horses and make a real meaningful difference, whether you're out there to end racing, whether you're like me, that's saying, look it, I am probably not going to end racing in my lifetime, but I sure as heck can do things with my voice and my experience to help make life better for horses while they're engaged in that. This is Voices for the Animals, and we've been speaking with Susan Kane, founder and president of the Unbridled Thoroughbred Foundation in New York. Her organization, by the way, is doing tremendous work to help racehorses and especially retired animals. So if you'd like to know more about or support her mission, you can find a link to her foundation page on the Voices for the Animals page at kboo.fm slash Voices for the Animals. You can also find a shareable podcast of this show on the page as well. It's worth noting before we wrap up that Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority, HISA, that we spoke about earlier, did issue a report on the 12 horse deaths at Churchill Downs earlier this year. And after spending millions of dollars to investigate, they said that they could not determine a single cause for the deaths. And so the findings were inconclusive. Also, 
There is pending legislation before Congress right now to disband HISA on the grounds that it is ineffective, though critics say that the move to eliminate HISA is really more about disgruntled owners and trainers disliking the stricter doping rules. We'll see how that plays out should Congress ever get back in the saddle again. Before I go, I'd like to ask a favor. If you love animals and appreciate this show or any of the programs here on KBOO, please, please support us right now. This show gives a voice to animals and other programs here on KBOO give a voice to those who would not otherwise be heard. And we only exist with your help. We're in the last days.